So whenever Clayton gave it to me, I made sure to go back there and blow my nose really hard into it. I guess it didn't work. <laughs> That's always the fear with wearing one of these things. So as we approach missions, we throw that word around. We know what the word is. Even secular people know what a missionary is. I, I want to drill down on, on our mindset, our perspective about missions. So how do you think about what we're doing this week? How's it categorized in your mind? I ask this because there's at least a couple of possibilities whenever you think of missions. And those possibilities, they tell us a lot about ourselves, and they tell us a lot about how we think about God. One view is that missionaries are good people going to less fortunate people. Good people doing good stuff, and good people help those good people go do good stuff. Just a lot, lot of good, happy, fluffy feelings around missions, whatever, you know, whatever, however you think about it. Another view is that there's this desperate need to get to the lost people before there's an even greater waste of souls, and we need to push harder and do more. It's a firestorm, and we're the firefighters. So there, there's another perspective, and I think between those two perspectives is the way that most people think of missions. And then there's a lot of truth in each of these, but if you take them by themselves, they're out of balance. Because one will show this lack of urgency, no vital connection to the gospel, but the other one shows a, a desperate and uneasy God who's kind of disappointed in our lack of progress and, you know, if they would just, we could get this done if they would just do more. So, do we believe that? It sounds pretty bad whenever you put it like that. But, what do we believe? So, if you would turn to Philippians chapter 1. Okay, so Philippians, just a little bit of background. The church at Philippi, their story is found in Acts 16. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony in the, the north of Greece. They, it was made up of a lot of retired Roman soldiers, so it was really patriotic, full of you know, strong Roman patriotic nationalism. If you'll remember, Philippi was the place where Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into jail. Uh, the story of the Philippian jailer. They were in prison, and they worshiped God all night, and there was an earthquake. Their chains fell off. The doors came open, and when the jailer came to, he was going to kill himself because apparently everybody escaped, but Paul said, don't hurt yourself because we're all here, and the jailer got saved. So the, the church at Philippi had then sent Paul support, both financial and personnel, as, as we'll look at later in the book. He had a hand in their coming to Christ and establishing this church there, and now they support him. So what we're seeing in this letter is we're literally seeing a missionary right back to a supporting church. That's what, the, that's the, that's what we're seeing here. That's this context. He calls them partners of the gospel and partakers of faith. We're going to read through Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it I love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go through this book, I pray that as we look at Paul's attitude as he himself was imprisoned in Rome for your sake, I pray that as we see his, his thoughts and his prayers and his desires for the church at Philippi, that we would see your desires the desires that we should have for each other, that our missionaries have for us, and that we should have for them. 
I pray that we'd see that clearly from your word here, Father, and I pray that we would pay attention to it. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, I think fundamentally, the first thing that I want us to know about missions is that it is a divine accomplishment. And it's an accomplishment. It's an accomplishment that's, that God himself is doing. One that God has chosen to do through his church. And this missions, it's to be a reflection of God from and of bodies of believers around the world. A reflection that's passed on through this mutual experience of salvation. So that's kind of a clunky statement. So in summary, God is saving people. And as those people reflect God, more people get saved. So God's mission then, we use the word mission, missional, missionaries. We throw it around. So what is God's mission? God's mission is fundamentally the salvation and the sanctification of his people to the glory of Christ. The salvation and sanctification of his people to the glory of Christ. So whatever you think that God is doing, whatever you want God to be doing, whatever you think that he should do, this is what he's doing. This is his mission that he has set forth in his word. And, as we'll see, he will do it. He will get it done. And success is promised. If you look at verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible promise we have here. So God started his work in his people. You know, sometimes us as humans, we don't finish what we start. We get busy with other priorities, run out of time, lose interest, get discouraged, find out sometimes that we don't have the ability to actually do what we wanted to do, what we envisioned. Sometimes we die before we get it done, before we finish this work that we started. Because our work, like ourselves, are limited to our finite nature. So that's the difference here. Our little finite nature and our finite perspective, we're short-lived and small-minded compared to this eternal being who's doing his work compared to God, and we're sinful. Half the time that I do complete something, it's out of pride for some accomplishment that I will attain. What we're seeing here is different. We're seeing God a holy God doing his holy work that he has always planned out to fulfill his purpose. So knowing this about God, we can know several things immediately. We can know that God began his creation with this purpose. It wasn't random. It wasn't fun. It wasn't a game. It wasn't just something that I can do that. He started this with a purpose. Then he did his work on the cross with the same purpose. His work at liberty with the same purpose. His work in missions with the same purpose. And it is moving forward, and it does not suffer delay. 
I want you to look real quick at where we find this. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is doing what He wants. God is doing what pleases Him. And He is going to get it done. The other place we see that in the New Testament is, is Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In Him we have redemption. There's that word, redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making he made known to us the mystery of His will, the mystery of what He wants to do, according to His kind intention. Earlier we saw His good pleasure. Here we see His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. An easier way to say that is the uniting of all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth, in Him. The redemption of mankind. So we see that, that God set out to, to do this. We see that God has set out with this purpose and that He expects fully that it will be completed to perfection. So this eradicates that desperate, disappointed God view that we get. It shows us someone more. It shows us God on this mission, the salvation, sanctification of His people to the glory of Christ. And then we see that it will be accomplished. It'll be accomplished in spite of all obstacles. So not only is God doing it despite obstacles, we find, actually, He's doing it through these obstacles, in some ways even by them. Obstacles like suffering and false motives. So in verses 12 through 18, we're finding Paul in a Roman prison awaiting judgment. doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He may die. He may be released. And that's the state that he's in. But look what he says in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. They do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the gospel. And the others do it they proclaim Christ, but out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking they'll afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? So what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
so Paul, he doesn't jump over false teachers. He acknowledges false teachers. He acknowledges false motives. But he registers no threat. He registers no threat to two things. In suffering and in false motives of, of, of other people, he registers no threat to one, to his joy. It's not going to get in the way of what makes him joyful, happy. And then he registers no threat to the mission of God at all. Paul is so confident that God's work is so unstoppable that he believes that there is no worst case scenario. He doesn't even, there isn't even a bad scenario. There isn't a narrative that he can think of where he gets beat out of this accomplishment, this accomplishment of missions. And then as we move down to verse 19 through 26, it's accomplished in life or death, even in death. Like, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? You could die. That's not even a problem to him. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, to die and gain is gain. And even if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So this letter is telling us that this is the way that we should think. So here's the attitude that he's fighting based on this. He's fighting the attitude that we're working against, that we're fighting against, desperately against anti-Christians, false denominations prosperity preachers or liberals or legalists, that, we're fight, that we fight against these things on the grounds that we're in danger of losing. That if these people or if these groups get too strong, then true Christianity may be done for. You better watch out for those people because, you know, they'll win. That's the attitude that he's fighting against. That God may fail his mission on, a, on account of these opponents that we see here. This is the fear that he wants to drive out that we'll see in verse 28. Yeah, he doesn't want people to be afraid of imprisonment and death, of course, but Paul doesn't see these things as a hindrance, much less to be feared. This fear, as well as a fear of persecution, is, is a fear of rivalry. Rivalry from the other team or false members in your own team. So, looking at this fear of rivalry, you have to notice that to fear a rival is one of two things. It's either to be giving in to your pride or to believe that God himself can be threatened. So, to fear a rival is to either be giving in to your pride, that is to say that they're afraid that they'll do better than me or make me look bad, or believe that they actually pose a threat to God and what God's trying to get done. That they'll weaken his cause. And that's the reality of the fearful thought process. You're going to come to one of those two conclusions. That, ooh, my pride, or, oh no, this is going to fall flat on its face. So what we've seen so far is God always accomplishes his mission. It'll be accomplished in spite of all obstacles. 
It'll be accomplished in life or death. So that begs the question, what does this divine accomplishment look like? We have evidence of God doing his work. We should have evidence of God doing his work. So how does this accomplishment manifest itself? How does it reveal itself? How does it show up? How does God's steady progress through time and people show proof of its existence, of its reality, of the reality of this work? If this is all about the glory of God and all about making much of Christ and his gospel, how, do, how does it show up in us? What does, what does it do to us? And what does, what's the work that it does in us? And more importantly, ask yourself this question. What should you look for in yourself as proof that God has done this work in you? What should you look for in yourself as proof that God has done this work in you? Well, Paul tells us. He tells us, he lays it out in here because it's his main big desire for his supporting churches. His desire isn't send me more money, send me more people, I really need help. His desire for his supporting churches is the evidence of this divine accomplishment going on in them. It's his goal and his ambition for the churches he's planning. And it's even what he's trying to do in prison in Rome. His goal didn't change. It wasn't like, yeah, we're preaching the gospel, we're growing people. I'm in prison, let's get that handled first. That, his goal didn't change. It remained the same in this situation, in this situation, in this situation, in this situation. So we see... Now, what you can say that evidence is, is big. It, it, you could preach sermons on it. But I want to pull what we see specifically out of this letter that Paul talks about, what he wants to see in his supporting churches. The first thing is love, but not just love. It's wise love. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer, literally, this is what he is asking God that they have. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Don't usually put that with love. So it's not a naive affection. It's wise. It's intentional. It's biblical love is guided by Scripture. And biblical love, by the way, is always active. It's not an emotion. It's not described as an emotion. It's not a feeling. Biblical love is always work. It's always that you're doing something. Biblical love submits to Scripture because submitting to anything else would not be loving. So the opposite of this would be love for the sake of infatuation, for the thrill of the emotion, uh, teenage love, unstable, temporary, wishy-washy, temperamental. Well, what, is, what else does he say about wise love? What's the result of wise love? Look at verse 10. I love how, how Paul's statements just go on and on and build and build on each other. He tells you what he's thinking. He wants your love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Why? So that 
you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The word approve there finds its roots in, in testing, testing money to see if it's authentic, checking for authenticity. I don't know, you bite it or whatever. I don't know why they always do that. You know, you see it in movies, somebody gives them a 20. Like, I guess it's good. But that's what this goes back to, checking for authenticity. Approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless so that you can identify what is good. This wise love should pr produce in you a wisdom that makes you to where you can identify what is good and not just identify what is good, and then you do that. He prays that the type of love Christians have is wise enough to choose to do what is right. And what is doing what is right? To be pure and blameless. And so be pure and blameless, or more literally translated, sincere and blameless. I looked up the etymology of the word sincere. It took me hours, five seconds on Google. The etymology of the word sincere, it means, it comes from the Latin meaning without wax. It means you got really clean ears. No, without wax. So what that means is, is a dishonest potter back in the day, if they had a substandard vessel that was, was not watertight, was pretty rough, they'd take and they'd melt wax. They'd fill in those cracks and they'd paint over it. It looked pretty good. And it, well, let's test it. You'd fill it with water and it would, sure enough, it would hold water. But it wasn't sincere. It had wax in it. Over time, the, max, the, the wax would melt away and wouldn't watertight. Couldn't be trusted. It wasn't sincere. It wasn't pure and blameless as we're called to be. Called to be sincere, pure and blameless. That's different from saying you need to at least follow the rules. You need to at least do the things, you know. It goes deeper than that. It's sincere. It's that you're not filling in your cracks and painting over it. You're being what you're supposed to be, that this wise love has produced a sincerity in you. And he sticks with that vessel metaphor. What are we as sincere vessels expected to contain? What should we, literally uses the word in verse 11, be filled with in a way that we don't lose it, that it doesn't leak out, and that we prove ourselves to be empty? It says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness. The stuff that Jesus causes to be produced in a true Christian through choosing to do what is right. The stuff that wise love produces. The stuff that being saved by God produces. And again, this could be broad and deep. But again, let's look in this letter and see what could be considered fruit of doing what's right. Over in verse 25, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with, uh, with you all. He's talking about it's more necessary for me to be with you. Why? For your progress and joy 
in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He wants to see your progress. It's what a missionary writing back to his sending church, not more people, not more, not more money. I want to see progress in you. There should be movement, forward movement. There should be growth. You should be growing. The only version of Christianity that you get that does not have a growing progress is false Christianity. And then look at how closely he links progress to joy. Joy is not a small theme in this book, as we'll see through the week. Your salvation should be, must be, your primary source of joy. Human, humans live off of that, that positive emotion. It is the way we're made. We turn out that positive emotion. I'm going to go do things that yield that positive emotion. Whether it's your kids, your grandkids, your, your, uh, your work, your spouse, or even the trappings of your church. I just really like my church. We're turning out. That's how it manifests itself, that positive emotion. To us, our salvation should be, our salvation must be, the primary source of joy. If not, then we've really underestimated that salvation or we haven't been saved. And there's a sermon there that your salvation should be the main, your main source of joy. So when things get really bad, at least I've got, at least I've got a good home to go back to. At least I can go home and sit in quiet. At least I can go enjoy being with this person. Well, people die. Stuff gets taken away. Things out of your control happen. But at least I got my kids. I know my kids love me. At least I got my grandkids. You know, it's a lot of work, but they bring me joy. At least I've got this friendship. Every one of those things will, will and can fall apart on you. There's only one thing left. At least my biggest progress, my biggest, my biggest problem has been handled. At least I don't have to worry about the one big thing. That's why it should be our primary source of that positive emotion, our prim primary source of joy. And then verse 27. Verse 27 really, really gathers up, and it really culminates what needs to be said. This is, if you want to know what a missionary wants, what a good missionary should want, if you want to know what your pastors at Liberty regularly struggle over, regularly desire, regularly are either happy or discouraged over, it's this right here. This is it. Only, after all of this, he says, only just this one thing, mainly this one thing, please, this one thing that I need out of you. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a mouthful. Let your manner of life 
living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live like Christians. Live like you've been saved. If you'll notice, if you'll look, if you'll, if you'll tinker with the words, you'll notice that this is different than saying living in a manner worthy of heaven. This is different than saying live in a way that's worthy of God. Get out there and you try and you be the best you you can be because you're shooting for heaven. That's not what he says. He says live in a manner worthy of, not God, worthy of the gospel. That's different. You think about it. You've got to think about it. You've got to look at it. So we're not working our way to get to heaven. We've proven that we can't do that. So that's not what he's calling for. Because he's preaching Christ. Christ wouldn't have had to die if we could do that. So we're saying something different. What this means is live as if this impossible work has been done for you. That is something worthy of joy. That is something that should produce that ultimate positive emotion. It's something that is worthy of joy and complete devotion if, if you really believe it. Live like people who've been changed, drastically changed. I hope that, I hope that for you, as proof of your salvation, as proof of God, of this work in you, I hope that every day of your life you get an opportunity to see a way that Christ has changed you from what you were. And I hope that it's a distinct enough contrast to catch your attention regularly. And then living a manner worthy of the gospel then feeds into other fruits of righteousness. And one we see is there's a witness a reputation that they'll be known for. He says, so that whether, back in the middle of verse 27, whether I come to you or come to you and see you again, I may hear of you. He doesn't want to just hear anything about them. Like, oh, that's that one church with a really nice choir. That's that one church with a really nice building. He doesn't want to just hear anything about them. He wants to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What he wants to hear of is strong unity. That's the primary thing. This is whenever it reaches me in Rome of what's going on with you, I want to hear of strong unity. And the way that he, Paul is so great at doing, he writes another illustration right into, the, right into it. He's, it's talking about... It, it's a Greek metaphor for a soldier standing at his post. But then he adds, in one spirit. So we should have a wartime unity. Wartime unity is, is this. It's when the situation is so serious that no petty differences touch the importance of the mission. And, and it's where our spiritual discipline, like the discipline of a soldier in battle, where that discipline takes over and controls us in these hot, uncomfortable situations. Specifically here, it's persecution. So we have that strong unity. And then striving side by side. Here he, he flips the metaphor. He changes it to that of a, of a team struggling for a victory. 
the same goal. Everyone on the same page, using the same playbook, the same goal, and the same faith. And then not frightened. Just like the wartime unity, we should have a wartime courage. A courage that, that weighs the consequences, weighs and then accepts the cost. But not for any reason. It's not being thrown away because of, of a sure reward, a sure expectation. He says in verse 20, he says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. This attitude that he's developed, he doesn't expect to be ashamed at any point saying, oh man, he was really into that stuff. He pushed really hard for that. It kind of fell, fell flat. It's like, nope, that's not going to happen. That guy, he, <laughs> who was the guy, the flat earther? He ended up dying. But he was so sure of it. He shot himself up in a rocket to prove that the, the earth was flat, homemade rocket. Like an awesome 12-year-old idea. He ended up dying. He was put to shame. Paul says, even if I die, I will not at all be put to shame. What the Bible is telling us here, that this single-minded, disciplined, fruit-producing, righteous unity, it's evident, it's proof proof from God to us, and it's proof to any who oppose the gospel, proof to them of their destruction, proof to us that we're saved. Now, why would they need proof? Why would anyone need proof of their destruction? That's just as important. That's a good thing. That's a very loving thing, and it's something we should look at as we look for, at this proof and say, man, I'm not seeing this proof in my life. Proof of their destruction. Why? So that they can get saved. Only a people being sanctified by God can maintain a love and a unity like this that stands up pressure. Other than that, it's not in humans. Other than the work of Christ, this kind of unity is not in the human. I'm a sinner. I'm the problem. Okay. So then what, what, do we, what do we think, what do we see that our missionaries need from us primarily? And what is our spot here today? What is our spot in this, this divine accomplishment? A few bullet points real quick. That we be a church that is confident in this work that we're involved in getting done. That we be a people truly get real joy from seeing and participating in this work. So if God's going to get this done anyway, why, why do we do missions? Why do people go halfway around the world to do this stuff? Why do people sacrifice so much? Some people do it because they do believe that, oh my goodness, this isn't going to get done if I go do it. Some people go do it and they go around the world and they loaf on an American dollar. But if you believe this, that God's doing it, the only plausible answer is joy. They want to be in the middle of it. God's going to do this, and I want to be a part of it. I want to see it done. The missionary 
is that little kid standing outside the toy store with his face pushed up against the glass. I want to see this. I want to look at it. I want to get as close as I can to it being done. You remember when you were a kid and you'd, you'd sit in front of the TV about 1992 and they'd say, back up, it's going to burn your eyes. Now we strap the TV to our face. I don't, I, somebody lied to me in 1992. I don't know what that's all about. But that's what this is. I'm going to get close to it. I'm going to get in the middle of it. I want to be a part of this. Because he's going to do it anyway. I might as well be in there with it. It's a difference in your joy. I'd rather take joy in this over here and just want to be a part of that. No, I want to be in that. I want to be part of it. And then it's that Liberty Baptist Church be a people that strive toward blamelessness and purity. And that the drive to work towards this righteousness comes from a genuine biblical love for others and for God. We call ourselves a missions-minded church. And we've got a lot of people here today who maybe this is going to be your first missions conference. Maybe you're becoming a part of Liberty. And as I always say, it is time for you to decide what that means and whether or not you're going to participate in it whether or not you're going to continue that as part of liberty, as being a missions-minded church. But being a missions-minded church means more than anything. It's not that we send money and resources to missionaries. What it means first and foremost is that God's divine accomplishment, God's mission, God's purpose, the salvation and the sanctification of his people to the glory of God, what it means is that it's done in us that it's done here first. Even as we're supporting them to accomplish the exact same thing around the world. Because nominal Christians, people that are Christians just to kind of make themselves feel better, unchanged people, unsaved people attending church regularly, they can send gobs of money to missions. That is not a missions-minded church. Missions-minded church is that this work is done here first. A missions-minded church is a church that's passing forward the work of God in us. Our missionaries need us. Our missionaries need you to be real Christians. Here's the word. Because I can't finish this sermon without giving the message. We talked about your joy in the gospel. We're living a life manner of the gospel. We have to reiterate the gospel. So here's the word. All of mankind is tainted by sin. This is self-evident. I, I can't get away from the fact that I'm a sinner. You can, you can explain God away. You can adapt a different lifestyle, a different process. You can become an atheist because you think that it's more scientifically plausible. You cannot get rid of the problem of sin. At, whether it's at the bottom of the pile or the top of the pile of all of the intellectual workings, sin's going to be the problem that always jabs that. So I am unacceptable to a holy and perfect God. But that God is so perfect that he supplied a way for us to be made right and acceptable to him. He sent his son, equal with him in all ways, but submissive to him in all ways, to become human. Take the punishment for us and give us his status as a perfect and holy God, holy before God. If we believe on him, 
And on top of that, if that's not enough, he then renews us. He then sanctifies us. That means that by the work that he does in us, we actually become more and more like him. We gradually begin to overcome that sin, and we start to grow into someone who's more and more free from the sin that we needed saved from. So there's, an, there's another word that goes along with, with, um, with without wax, with sincere. And it's, it's along with the word approved for your testing. For uh, I think the etymology of it, it comes out as approved. And it means sun-tested. Sun, S-U-N, sun-tested. So if you were buying from a shady potter dealer, you, you grab that, and man, it looks good, and it even holds water. What do I do? Hey, there's light coming through there. That's literally what they, that's, that's what the word comes from. Approved, sun-tested, hold it up. Look at it. There's cracks. Sincerely sun-tested. Taking a hard look at. Look at yourselves. Look at this proof of God in your life. It is life and death. As a matter of fact, it's the only thing that's life and death. So don't skimp on yourself whenever you look inward at this because it, it's life and death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.